the story parts. Well, that's part of the fun of being Christians, isn't it? Working out the difficult bits. Uh, I was reading someone the other day, it could have been C.S. Lewis, he said when you come up against a challenge, he said that just means you have to work harder at it. But he said it's probably in that challenge that you'll find something that you really need to know. Uh, so let's pray again and we'll, we'll commit ourselves to God as we uh, wrestle with his word this morning. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, please speak to us uh, for our good and for your glory from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. So this section we're up to, we're up to Acts chapter 25 and 26. Uh, Nathan preached a pretty big chunk last week and this is following on from that. This is a really long section that details what happens to Paul after he's been arrested. Now the arrest happened all the way back in chapter 21 and so he was accused by the Jews of being a lawbreaker. He was accused by Jews in Jerusalem who'd come from Ephesus so they were there for the Jewish feast, but they knew Paul from Ephesus because Paul had been in Ephesus for three years. So they got to Jerusalem and they see him in Jerusalem near the temple and they come to the conclusion that he has taken a Gentile who they saw with him into the temple precincts and they accuse him of being a lawbreaker. Uh, we're told in Luke 21 that the whole city began to riot and so the Romans who were the governing authority came to quell the riot. No Roman tribune, no leader of a Roman military uh, force wanted to be held responsible for violent rioting anywhere in the empire. Now, what I've been told, what I've heard is that Jerusalem was about the last place you wanted to be sent because it was kind of as far away from Rome as it was possible to be and the people in Jerusalem, because of their devotion to their religion, were difficult to manage. And so if you failed in your duty to keep the peace in Jerusalem, that would not go well with your superiors in Rome. So we're told that the tribune came in and quietened everything down and to save Paul's life, the Roman tribune actually arrested him. It was safer for Paul to be in custody than it was for him to be free because the crowd wanted to tear him limb from limb because they believed these accusations. But before we get to Acts 25... I'd like to go back and just do a quick survey of some earlier parts. Go way back to chapter 1. Keep your finger in chapter 25, but go back to chapter 1. Because I want to think about why it is that, Paul, that Luke concentrates so much attention on this fairly unpromising feature of Paul's life, the fact that he's been arrested and he's in custody and he's on trial. We might think to ourselves, why wouldn't Luke spend more time telling us about Paul's triumphs? about his preaching of the gospel where many came to faith. Why do we see Paul uh, at his lowest, really, as a human? Um, so go back to chapter 1, verse 6. And Luke's introducing the book of Acts. And he's... Actually, that is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. What am I doing? I can't count. Uh, I transcribed that wrongly. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke... The author of the book of Acts writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, we've talked about this before, but it's very important to understand. This helps us understand what the book of Acts is about. So we know that Luke wrote Luke, and we know that he wrote the book of Acts, and they were meant to be seen as part one and part two of the same story. And what's the story? What Jesus taught. So Jesus taught all through the Gospel of Luke, 
And then at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he teaches his apostles what to teach. And so the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to teach, not personally and physically, but by his Holy Spirit through his apostles. That's the agenda of the book of Acts. In my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jump down to verse 8. So Jesus tells the original apostle band that they're to stay in Jerusalem. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the agenda for the book of Acts. It's what Jesus is teaching through his apostles from Jerusalem as far as it can go to the ends of the earth. Now, when Paul was converted because he was a violent persecutor of the followers of the Lord Jesus, when he was converted, rip across to Acts chapter 9, he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus with a special task. And this is something that really comes out in our reading today. So he was an apostle, but a different kind of apostle because he hadn't been with Jesus physically on earth as Peter and James and John and the rest had. But this is where... Paul was conferred with the task of apostleship because he had been a witness of Jesus in a supernatural way. And so Acts chapter 9 verses 15 to 16, Jesus said to Ananias, who was commissioned to help Paul, Jesus says to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Luke is showing us the sufferings of Paul because Jesus said they would happen. But it was through the sufferings of Paul that the gospel got to the ends of the earth. And so another thing that we need to learn about the book of Acts is one of the dominant themes is that God is in control. Now, we might look at our world and wonder, is he still? I've talked to lots of Christians in recent times who who ask, what's happening? What's going on here? Uh, because we've got used to a fairly comfortable way of life and things seem to be changing that are going to make life more difficult for Christians if we hold true to what we've always said we believe. But we've got to believe, because we see it in Scripture, that God is in control and he's exercising his reign through Jesus, who sits at his right hand. So Jesus has ascended to heaven, that's how the book of Acts starts. He's seated at God's right hand and no matter what circumstances of life you're in, They're all under his sovereign control. Sovereignty is just another way of saying Jesus is king. And so we live under his kingship now. We may not understand all of the methods that he uses, but we see that in this this reading here. So one of the things that I love about the book of Acts is is that it represents real historical things. The Bible is not just a collection of pleasant stories to help you live a better life. The Bible is the record of what God is doing to restore his ruined creation and he uses people and he works in the processes of history to see that his will is done. So down to chapter 24. At the very end of what was preached last week, there's, there's a, a lot of historical characters that are, that are figured here. So Paul has been taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea which is where the Romans had their headquarters in Israel. That was where they ruled from. And so he's down there in Caesarea and he's on trial before the the Roman governor, whose name is Felix. And in verse 25, Felix 
expresses some alarm at the things that Paul's saying to him. So he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given by him, him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So he found Paul interesting to chat with. Clearly, he hadn't embraced Paul's message, but behind it all, he was hoping that Paul would bribe him to get out of prison. I actually uh, spent a fair bit of time talking to a woman some years ago whose husband was in prison in Cambodia. And she raised, she sold her house so she could raise the money to bribe the local officials to get him out. That was how desperate she was. Now, wouldn't you think if Paul was innocent, and he was, that he might have, that the same thought might have crossed his mind. For the simple payment of a fee, I could be out of this prison. But Paul didn't. That's interesting. Anyway, verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. So he's the new governor. So we go from Felix to Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix left Paul in prison. So there he is in prison for trumped up charges that everybody knows he's not guilty of. The Romans have actually said this is just a religious matter. It's got nothing to do with us. And yet Paul's in prison. So he doesn't sit there whinging. He does things. So we're into chapter 25. What I'm going to do is we're going to read verse chapter 25 and 26 and I'll offer some observations as we go. Now... Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favour against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now remember there were men who took a vow, they weren't going to eat and drink, I hope it wasn't the same men because that was two years ago. But they're still intent. Nothing's changed with the way that the Jews view Paul. They want him dead. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go down there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So the Jews want Paul to be tried in Jerusalem. Actually, they just want to kill him before he gets there so there won't need to be a trial. But verse 6... After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood before him, stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defence, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offence. So Paul's just summed up the case against him. He's been charged with heresy. So in other words, he's spoken ill of the God of Israel, according to the Jews. He's been charged with sacrilege. In other words, he's desecrated the temple. They're charging him with taking an unclean Gentile into territory that only Jews could go in. That's a fairly serious charge. It was one that the Jews themselves would kill you for, but they want to outsource that to the Romans. But the other thing that they're charging with him, him with is being a threat to the peace of Rome. So they're saying, they've already said wherever he goes, he stirs up trouble. In fact, that's not true. Wherever he goes, others stir up trouble because he's there. But they want, him, they want rid of him. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the Jews are demonstrating themselves by saying that they're zealous for the law. They're actually demonstrating that they're law breakers because their law forbade them from killing an innocent man without a fair trial. 
and yet they were going to take that into their own hands. So what we've got here is an irony. The Romans are better at obeying their law than the Jews in this story are at obeying their law, God's law. And Paul actually finds protection in the Roman law when Jewish law should have given it to him too. Verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, because he's a politician and he wants to keep these people happy and quiet, Festus said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Paul knew that there was no way he was going to get a fair trial if he got to Jerusalem. He doesn't know about the plot against him, but he knows that he won't get a fair trial in Jerusalem. There was a rule in the Roman law that if a citizen anywhere in the empire felt that they weren't being dealt with fairly in their local area, they could make an appeal and have their case heard by none other than the emperor. In those days, it was Emperor Nero who was a very cruel man, but nonetheless he sat at the top of the Roman tree. And so Paul appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen. Now we've already been told that Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And when he told the Roman tribune that, the Roman tribune says, I had to pay a large sum of money to become a Roman citizen. Paul says, well, I'm one by birth. So here he is pressing his rights as a citizen of the Roman Empire. He appeals to Caesar. Now, at this point in the story of Acts, the Jews disappear. And from here to the end, it's Paul's interactions with the Roman world that Luke concentrates on. Now, Jesus has already made it quite plain to Paul back in chapter 23. We're told that the Lord stood by him and he said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. Now, that's the ends of the earth. Paul's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's not going to take it as a free man. He's going to take it as a prisoner. But you won't hear a word of complaint. We're not told in the story here, but I wonder if Paul's thinking, I'll appeal to Caesar, then I'll get a free trip to Rome. I won't have to pay for the ticket myself because they had to take him to Rome as a prisoner. But again, it's this suggestion that behind it all, Jesus, whose story this really is, is directing the affairs of history. So verse 13, When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defence concerning the charge laid against him. That sounds fair, doesn't it? So the Jews were operating a fair way beneath that. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So, Festus has at least heard the gospel and he understands it to an extent without yet obviously believing it. But he knows that that that's what Paul's preaching. And he's saying to King Agrippa, it's just a religious dispute. It's just a squabble. He can't work out why Paul needs to be in prison. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Now, Agrippa is the great-grandson of King Herod, who killed all the babies when Jesus was born. So he comes from a pretty miserable family line because the great, Herod the Great, that was, that was his name, and Herod the Great's son was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded and his son, Herod Agrippa's father, Herod Agrippa I, he was the one who in Acts chapter 12 had James executed. So there's a pretty long line of bloodshed running in this family. Herod Agrippa was the king of the Jews but he reigned under the Romans authority and he only had a small amount of territory to his name but he was still a king and he still gathered about with a fair bit of pomp and ceremony. So this Herod Agrippa comes to town and because he's an expert in Jewish law the Roman governor Festus wants to say well what do we do here because the problem for Festus was Paul's appeal to Caesar and Festus has to write a charge so Caesar knows what the trial's about and he says I don't know what to write so we read on verse 23 the next day Agrippa and Bernice so Agrippa King Agrippa King Herod Agrippa II Bernice was his half-sister but she accompanied him everywhere not sure what to read into that they came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So this is a big occasion. It's a, a glorious occasion full of all the kinds of pomp and ceremony you'd expect when rulers get together. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this band about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. I think Festus is fearful that he'll he'll look like a fool if he sends a prisoner to Caesar and says but there's nothing wrong with him so he needs to work out what to write so verse 26 Agrippa said to Paul you have permission to speak for your this is this is chapter 26 verse 1 Agrippa said to Paul you have permission to speak for yourself then Paul stretched out his hand and made a defense now stretching out your hand was a device that speakers used that said listen up this is important Paul had done it back when the writers when he when he wanted to speak to the writers and he said pretty much the same thing I'm about to make my defense now that word defense in Greek is a word that we use in English the Greek word is apologia 
And to make an apology doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry. What it means is I'm about to tell you why I believe what I believe, which Christians are called to do. So 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Christians are called to be apologists. It's good to know what you believe. It's helpful to know why you believe it. So that you can tell people that what you believe is not just make-believe, but is grounded solidly on history. So Paul says, I want to tell you, I want to give you my apologia. I want to defend the things that I believe. So verse 2. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm making my defence today against all the accusations of the Jews because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Now, what is about to come is the most detailed explanation of Paul's testimony in the whole book of Acts. This is the third time we hear about it. So when something's repeated in the Bible, that means it's important. So the first time we read about it, Luke gives the account of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. The second time we read about it is when Paul is giving his defence in Jerusalem to the people who want to tear him limb from limb. But now he's on trial for his life and he gives the account again and he talks about what happened to him when he met Jesus. Now there's a tip for us too. When you give your testimony of meeting Jesus, who can disprove it? That's what Paul's doing here. He had a remarkable personal encounter with the risen Jesus in a vision. But no one can say, well, that didn't happen because they weren't there. This is Paul's experience. When you speak about your experience, that has real power. When you're honest about it, Jen's admitted to that today. She's spoken about her experience with other people. That's one way into a gospel conversation. When people work out you're a Christian, you just tell them, how you met Jesus that has power so that's what Paul does now one of the things that he emphasizes here is the resurrection and he says the resurrection should have been expected by the Jews that's why we read Exodus chapter 3 before that's why we read John chapter 11 before because Mary knew that the resurrection was on the books and Jesus said well I'm the resurrection but he'd already taught that when Moses met Yahweh in the burning bush, what that indicated was Yahweh says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says that shows that God is the God of the living because they were dead 400 years before Moses. But God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So he's the God of the living. How can he be the God of the living? Because of the resurrection. And so Paul emphasises the resurrection in this talk that he's about to give so verse 4 my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews they have known for a long time if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I lived as a Pharisee and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now Paul was a Pharisee. 
If you've been following the story of the book of Acts, you'll realise, because it's explained in here, that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of God. Now, what they believed was the prophets taught that. They taught that the Messiah would come and he would end the exile. He would end their imprisonment by foreign powers. And that was presented as being like a a resurrection from the dead. But they also believed that life would not just end when physical life ended, but that one day the bodies of those who lived for God would be raised by God. So the Pharisees believed that, but the Sadducees didn't. And so Paul says, and he's got lots of Pharisees in the audience... He's saying, I just believe what you believe. My belief is in complete continuity with true Jewish faith. I just believe it for a different reason now. So verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints, that is the holy people, people made holy by Jesus, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, like he did with Stephen, back in Acts chapter 7. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So that's what Paul used to be. So he's speaking from experience as someone who hated the followers of Jesus. And he was prepared to live out the extent of his hatred in raging fury. And he didn't even care if they died. In fact, he was quite happy for it. He gave his approval. So he's been, he's expressed what he thought was his devotion to God through this violent hostility. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you were reading this in the King James Version, it would say there, kick against the pricks, right? which sounds an unusual thing to say. But what it means is this. That's agricultural language that Jesus is using to Paul. In those days when farmers used to use cattle to do their ploughing, the, the, the oxen would be bound together with, with a yoke, uh, but then the plough would be connected behind the yoke to the man who was driving the, the, the cattle. An untried bull would try to kick its way out of the yoke. And so the man who was doing the driving with the, with the, the plough would have a long stick which had a prod on the end of it, and he'd go like that into the cow's backside, and it would quickly learn that the pain of that outweighed the pain of the yoke and they'd stop kicking. They had a similar deal if they were towing a cart. They had this special bar that rotated that had little metal prongs on it, and if a, if a, a new beast tried to kick its way out of towing the cart, it would be pricked. Right? So these are goads. And Jesus says, I've been goading you and you're kicking against it. It's time to stop kicking and get in the yoke. That's what he's saying to him. And so Paul says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Jesus, this is where Paul gets his idea of Jesus being the head of the body. Because Paul thought he was persecuting Christians, but he didn't know he was having a go at Jesus, the head. Now there's another encouraging thing. If you're suffering, Jesus suffers with you. 
Ever thought of that? Jesus is the head of our body. That's why you can take your burdens to Jesus, friends, because he understands and he feels your pain. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Take it to heart, underline it, remember it. Verse 16, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified me by, by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now if you were to go back through this carefully you'd just see there that Paul has given us a key to understanding the gospel. If ever you have to defend the faith, remember Acts 26 because Paul has summed it up in a nutshell. This is the essential components of Christian belief. If people come to you with less than this, they're not bringing you the gospel. So have a look at this. What do we see there? Verse 6, he's hopeful about the promise made by God to our fathers. There is continuity between Jewish faith and Christian faith. We have one book. We've just got the completed end of it. So the first thing is there's continuity. The second thing is that it's supernatural. It involves the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Any attempt to make Christianity unsupernatural is a false gospel. We believe in a saviour who was raised physically from the dead. The next thing is that people, when they put their trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, are transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That is supernatural. It won't make you popular telling people that, but that's what happens. The other thing is that believing in Jesus as the only way to God, and we've already seen this in the book of Acts, is an exclusive belief. There is no other way because only Jesus could pay with his body for the the, the sins of us all. But believing in Jesus demands change. Look at verse 20. When he defends himself, he says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance means a complete change of mind. And when our mind's been changed about God and ourselves and we come by faith to God through Jesus, it will result in a change of behaviour. We can't go on living the old way. That was the way that belonged to the kingdom of darkness that would have taken us to hell. It demands lifestyle change. That's the heart of the gospel. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defence, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. It's like he's butting in. Paul's been addressing his remarks to the king. Now Festus the Roman butts in. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. 
For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not only that you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now that there is the heart of an evangelist. And friends, I think that needs to be our heart for those that we know that don't know Jesus. Are you glad to be a Christian? Has it done you any good at all? Is your future looking brighter because you know that you've put your trust in Jesus? I was talking to a man at Fairview Homes for the Aged in Warrigal on Friday who's been through double bypass surgery and had a stroke two days after. So he's now getting around on a wheelie walker. And, uh, and, and I've known Roy for years and, and he just said, well, I'm just trusting Jesus here. I don't know how anybody does this without him. Nor do I. Well, is that your experience of Jesus? Because if it is... You should want others to be as you are, except without whatever it is that's holding you down at the moment. That's what Paul said. He's on trial for his life and he's witnessing. Now, there's no evidence that these authorities trusted Jesus. So don't be surprised if people reject your message, but do be prepared to give it, even when it's difficult. So, verse 30, Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those with him those sitting with them and when they had withdrawn they said to one another this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment and Agrippa said to Festus this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar he could have been set free why wasn't he because he knew he had to get to Rome so what are you prepared to put up with for the sake of the gospel I was talking to another lady a good friend of ours the other day was pouring out her heart telling us about her children that haven't believed but she was telling us about her brother who hadn't believed and she, she told me one that she used to pray to God, whatever it takes. And then she got cancer and she said, well, I didn't mean that. Because that woke her brother up. Whatever it takes. That's what Paul would have said. Whatever it takes, even prison, even unfair trials, even false accusations, whatever it takes, Paul would have said. So there's a lot in there, there's a lot to think about, but what we find at the heart of it is a man who has been transformed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that transformation, he wants that to be made known to other people. I would that you are as I am, except for these chains, says Paul. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for for Paul, for, for this extraordinary example of a man who was completely sold out to you and I pray that you would help us to search our hearts so that there's no corner of them that's not submitted to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you that he didn't count equality with you something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and became a servant for our sake. So I pray that you would help us to serve him every day that you give us breath and uh, grow your church as we uh, seek to take this life-changing message to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.